millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the fantastical murder mystery novel, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. We'll also be talking to the author Stuart Turton later in the show to hear about how he put the book together. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. This is our second book club special in which we're going to be talking about the novel The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is a Miss Marple era style murder mystery. And it's a book that Caroline has been really excited about for a while, haven't you? Yeah, I first saw the cover of it on Instagram like end of last year and read some sort of early press that basically said that it was... I think the line that got used all the time was that it was like Gosford Park plus Agatha Christie by way of Inception. Oh yeah, that's that's good. I like that. Some kind of like Groundhog Day time hopping, body swapping murder mystery. And that's exactly what it is. In many ways, it has lots of the conventions of a what gets called a, a golden age crime thriller. Mm-hmm. It's set in a country house. It has a defined cast of characters. There's a lot of like aristocrats and servants and that kind of thing. But in several very important and distinctive ways, it is not like that, I think yeah. it's fair to say. Yeah, and it's got this totally bonkers, mind-bending narrative that, as you can tell from the sort of inception comparison, kind of takes you into lots of different possible realities and possible timelines specifically so yeah i mean it starts off i feel like in a fairly conventional murder mystery style which is we've got this nameless faceless character lost in a forest who like doesn't know who they are or why they're why they are where they are and i feel like amnesia used in that way does quite often happen in like crime novels Yes, definitely. So he kind of wakes up running, essentially. He's running through a forest. All he can remember is the name Anna. Like he shouts Anna, like he doesn't know who Anna is or like why he needs to save her, but he needs to save her. And somewhere else in the forest, he can hear a woman running away from a pursuer and potentially being harmed. And then he hears a shot and he just doesn't know anything. 
and he's just scared all the time. I didn't really notice this to start with, but I did once I'd got a few pages in that everything's in the present tense, Mm -hmm. which is quite unusual, particularly for a historical novel to have something written in the present tense because you know, often you, you're you talking flashback or you're inviting the reader to like look back on something. But this, the whole idea, I think, what the author's trying to create is the sense that you find out things exactly the same moment that the narrator does. Totally. And this idea of being like dropped in a situation totally contextlessly. You're just mm. like thrown in it and you don't know what's going on. And so, yeah, the nature of information occurring is just very, very immediate. And so... You're kind of like strolling around in the dark as much as this guy is waiting for things to kind of appear Mm. to give you some sort of context for what's going on. And I think when I first started reading the novel, one thing that, you know, when you read a novel, often the blurb kind of gives you the the first setup, the immediate premise that you get when you open to page one. And there's a real disconnect in this novel between the name that is in the title on the cover and the sort of blurb of the book and and where you are in the beginning because you hear there's been a murder but if i thought the person murdered was called anna not evelyn hardcastle and who were what none of the named characters seem to be around us at this current moment in time and stuff so it's a it's a good way to kind of make you feel really confused and like you are dropped into the middle of something you don't really understand Mm, yes exactly so we're uh, being a bit careful about spoilers in this chat because we feel like this is a novel that really repays reading without any understanding at all of what's going to happen so just look out for some mild spoilers ahead now and maybe finish the book and then come back to this if you are part way through so yeah after our time with the first character the really shocking thing that happens next is that the same consciousness wakes up in another body and gradually realizes that he's seeing the same day replayed but from inside a different person and that is not something I was expecting to happen at all in a kind of Agatha Christie era novel. Totally. It's really, really bizarre. And I think it does take a little while to wrap your head around because for a start, you know, we think that what's happened is that there's been a case of amnesia that this guy doesn't know who he is. And then then you slowly begin to realise that actually the essence of this person, the soul, whatever you want to call it, um, this sort of disembodied figure inside Mm. this body relates to a totally different person who you know we don't even know if he has a connection to any of these people at this party and then yes as this kind of weekend long party continues at this mansion the titular hardcastle's mansion he moves into the body of different guests every time that he wakes up in the morning so it's kind of like groundhog day but if you know bill murray then was whoever else is in groundhog day (laughs) Uh, each time (laughs) yeah exactly and he has this as he gradually gets better at understanding what's going on because obviously for the first like 50 pages I feel like the narrator is just going ah what Mm -hmm. what the whole time in the same way that you are once he kind of starts to understand the mechanics of this bizarre situation he finds himself in he has this weird sense of like seeing himself walking past him in Mm -hmm. the body of other people and he knows Mm -hmm. they're all not him but you know for instance one of the bodies he inhabits is of this really fat banker 
called Lord Ravencourt. So at one point he like crosses paths with, so they get called hosts, like his current host crosses paths with that host. And he realizes that he's like watching himself Mm -hmm. taking actions. And so you quite quickly get into the, I feel quite common tropes of time traveling sci-fi type stuff where you get into questions of like, can I change the past? And like, if I, is everything preordained or if I act differently, can I make something Mm -hmm. come out differently? Can I sort of change the outcome? Yeah. And kind of in that very typical time travel way, I always think of it from Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, but you start Mm. to see people doing things which cause events that you've already seen. So for example, a mysterious letter turns up and surprises the main character and then later we see him writing it to himself and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you get you get a sense of the circularity of this day. And then there are these kinds of other figures who are sort of instructional almost figures. So obviously they're all the, all the kind of innocent, normal people at this party. Then he knows that he himself is some of these guests, you know, inhabiting them, as you say. Mm. And then there's also some other kind of people who seem to be totally aware of his situation and seem to know how this like bizarre fantastic experience has been engineered one of them is this person just called anna and he doesn't really know anything about her then there's someone who turns up in a bizarre mask and disguise and then there's someone kind of shadowily known as the footman and so there are all these and then he often meets himself who giving himself advice. So there are these kinds of four separate forces all trying to kind of influence mm. and instruct him. And basically the premise is like, if you solve the murder of Evelyn Hardcastle, then you'll be freed from this never ending hellscape where you wake up as a different person every day and don't know who you are or where you're from. So from in that sense that felt quite Black Mirror-esque to me. This idea that like you don't yes. know what's happening to you, but you have to achieve this task and then you will be free to resume your normal life even though you don't know what that is. It's that kind of bizarre mind control, the idea that you can put someone's mind in the body of something else experience that for me is quite Black Mirror. And heavy spoiler alert now, something that I thought was interesting about the approach to this was that you never find out what the quote normal life of the central character is you get a little bit of discussion at the end but i feel like that comes from a slightly unreliable mm. source and you you know he never remembers essentially he never wakes up in his in his actual body going oh god that was mm. a terrible dream like that never happens so you're just left with the sense that so blackheath house is the place they are that's where the house party is taking place you're kind of sent you're left with this odd feeling that Although you're told Blackheath House is not real and that it's just this like awful construct, mm. almost like a prison meant to torture bad mm-hmm. people in this constant loop, you're left thinking, well, if it's not real, then what is real? Because we haven't exactly. been shown what's outside of it. So I found that quite unsettling and a bit disturbing because one of the tropes of detective fiction that is one of the reasons why people read it almost as a comforting thing, even though it's about like violence and death, is the sense of finality Mm. and judgment it gives so like an awful crime happens and the moment when order resumes exactly order resumes the crime is solved the murderer is punished and Mm -hmm. everything can go back to the way it was whereas we never get that satisfaction of like and it was all a dream or 
you pass you the never get the sense of like it's just and the village set, the slept soundly in their beds knowing the murderer was locked up once mm. and for all because another big theme of this novel is the capability that every single human being has for violence and you know quote badness and how far any person is bad or good which obviously these are big themes of all crime fiction but it's particularly explored mm. with the day repeating itself people sometimes act differently to how they did the day before and that really invites you to ask like well what's the difference between this guy who commits a murder and this guy on the day that he chooses not to commit the murder where is the essence of that person mm. and how far can a person ever be rehabilitated for for dark crimes and so on and i think that's one element where the structure kind of allows you to engage in those in those questions in an interesting way but it does mean that as you say at the end of the novel you're not like well everything's fine now because the entire book has been showing you how like nothing is sort of ever fine and at the same time everything can be fine if people change their <laughs> ways um, so it's a tough one yeah exactly it's random and senseless in a way that something like an mm -hmm. Agatha Christie never really is that's an important point of difference I think because uh, as you'll hear with in our interview with the author he's a massive Agatha Christie fan and like first embarked on this project decades ago essentially because he wanted to try and write something like she did but I think he has like grown away from mm. that like straight pastiche idea and he's tried to make something obviously of his own so what were the sort of highlights and the low points of this book for you? I think the highlights for me, I love how broad the cast of characters is. I love that sense of, mm. you know, we've got loads of potential suspects, which is something that is so good about Agatha Christie, but is is brilliantly done here. And the sheer amount of twists and turns. I mean, this is a 500 page novel and... Yeah. To relive one day over 500 pages, I think sound, could sound like stretching a concept to its very limits, but we learn little glimpses of, you know, all of these different new characters with every few pages. And so you're constantly second guessing the motives of everyone because you get a first impression of them, then it's turned on its head, then it's turned on its side, then you learn something really, mm. really crazy about them, then that's put into a really understandable context and so on and so forth. So I think if you like, um, you know, that kind of thrilling wild ride element, then that's going to be be there for you totally. I think the stuff I found more difficult was just, it is very, it's just very complicated <laughs> to keep all the timelines in your head yeah. and all the, <laughs> all the bits of information he's constantly uncovering new evidence it seems there's so much stuff in this book and so so many clues it's absolutely impossible to keep it all in your head at once and that's obviously a deliberate decision um from the author but at times i found that exhausting yeah i know what you mean and also i think in some cases it is definitely a deliberate effect because once the central character works out what he's supposed to be doing and that he is this kind of body hopping yeah. detective he starts to see signs in everything he starts to think everything is significant so he gathers all of this information because he thinks it will help him in some way so because you are seeing everything from his point of view you just get deluged by like oh well this person's a blackmailer mm -hmm. this person deals secretly in drugs and you're like but which of does any of it matter does any of it actually have a bearing on the case the the like the problem he has to solve to be released and you only really find it like 
get get it kind of filtered down in the last mm-hmm. few pages and they keep throwing absolute curveballs at you right until the end not just in mm. terms of the murder mystery plot but in terms of the existential plot which sometimes i found a bit like wild and a bit a bit difficult to keep following <laughs> what about you what were your what were your highlights and lowlights so i absolutely love anything with time travel in where you get that reveal of like but it was me giving yeah, myself yeah. the note earlier on. I just love it. Like it always makes me think of, you mentioned Prisoner of Azkaban. It makes me think of the bit in the film of that. Oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what they need to do, but future Harry is like hiding behind the pumpkins the and he throws the stone and like he can't work out like, why aren't they moving? Why aren't they moving? Um, and then he realizes that they only move because they get hit by a stone and he's like, oh, I throw the stone. And then he looks down and sees a stone on the pumpkin. He's like, this is the stone I throw. Yeah. Oh, and I love that kind of interplay between like past and future selves. So anytime there was an example of that, I always just, it always makes me feel like a clockwork mechanism has something that's just like clunked into place in a really mm. satisfying way. So yeah, I, I enjoyed all of the like, oh, that's how that note gets there. I put it there. Or that's why this person waits here. It's because a different mm-hmm. me tells them to, that kind of thing. In terms of lowlights, I think... I felt like there was a little bit of a pacing problem towards the end. I know this is always the case in detective novels of any sort that like you have the big denouement and this massive like rush of information towards the end. But because this book was operating on two different levels, it's operating as a like straightforward murder mystery. And then also, as you say, a kind of like existential meditation on justice. There's a whole lot of information in the latter category that you get really near and that the narrator gets really near the end and I was I don't know I was so wrapped up in the Mm -hmm. like who done it that I almost didn't care and I felt bad and they come at the same time really don't they at the same time as Mm -hmm. he's getting all this information about who the real murderer is and you know what the grand plan at the heart of the murder mystery is he's also getting all the information about who he is and why he's there and I think that double hitter maybe is what makes it feel a bit more exhausting than your typical murder mystery but then maybe it's what makes it more satisfying as well so it's Mm. a it's a double-edged sword it is i also really love the sort of setting and description of the place in it as well because uh like a lot of the kind of books that this is working off um you know it has a map in the in the front it shows you the whole country house but with a twist on that this isn't a country house in mm. its pomp this is a country house that has been like reopened 19 years after uh like a beloved child of the lord and lady was murdered there and no one's ever really been there since and then for some weird reason they're they're recreating the house party where this tragic event happened and there are just bits where the narrator like walks through a an area that isn't really being used for the party and he realizes that the house is just falling Mm. to bits and like there's mold everywhere and holes in it and all this kind of stuff and obviously like it's a metaphor for the decay of the heart and all that kind of thing but yeah Yeah, i really enjoyed that me too and i think he gets the nails the period doesn't he that's really fun the Mm. atmosphere of the period is great the atmosphere of the period and the interplay between like, like it's interesting i feel when you know sometimes he's in the body of a servant and sometimes he's in the body of a master or a like a posh person and there's one his favorite host actually for me was the one where mm. he's the policeman who's like mm. not really either who's sort of you know he's he has like a common person's job but he's yeah, obviously bright and ambitious host. and yeah 
and up and coming. And yes, yeah, so you just get lots of interesting comments. He gets to observe like how people speak to him differently when he's mm. different people mm. and that kind of thing, which is obviously there in something like an Agatha Christie, but it's not really the main focus. Totally. So that, those are our thoughts on The Seven Deaths of Even Hardcastle. Now we're going to hear from the author, Stuart Turton. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So now I'm joined by Stuart Turton, the author of The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, who is going to tell us a little bit about how he came to write this extraordinarily complicated thriller. Uh, Stuart, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. So as, as I said, your book is very, very complicated in terms of its plot. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to conceive of something like that? This is one of those questions that I feel I should have a really good answer for. And I've been asked it enough times and I never quite get there. I think it's because I, a lot of people use the word inspiration, which is kind of like, it's not what happened with this book at all. It took about 12 years for the idea to sort oh, wow. of congeal in my head. So it kind of settled like sediment. What initially happened was that I wanted to write an Agatha Christie novel. Um, they were the first books I ever devoured. I loved them to pieces. Uh, I loved what she did with them, the way everyone was a promise. Like she would give you one of these books. She would give you all the characters. She would give you the mystery and she would tell you that the clues were in front of you and you could solve it if you just kept an eye on it. And basically it was a game. Are you cleverer than Agatha Christie? And 99% of the time you weren't. And I love that. I loved that as a kid and I wanted to do that. And I think I wanted to do that before I even ever wanted to write a book. I didn't quite know. I just wanted to write one of these Agatha Christie things and come up with something like that. 
But then, I mean, that's eight or nine. And then I come to do it when I'm 21, 22. And I have absolutely no idea how you write an Agatha Christie book. I sit down and I stare at it and I'm like, the best person who ever wrote Agatha Christie books is Agatha <laughs> Christie. And she wrote all of them. She wrote 60 odd of the sodding things and she used every twist. She used every great plot. I mean, really selfishly, to be honest, like she just strangled the life out of the Agatha Christie genre by being Agatha Christie. So that was, yeah, 22. And I think I just sat on it for about 10 years. I'm 38 now to give you an idea of how long this has been with me. Over the years, being a child of the 80s, things just congealed around it so he uh, quantum leap i don't know if you saw that show that's where the body swapping angles sort of came from i loved that as a kid and then groundhog day that idea of the time loop that congealed over the top of that and then at some point it was just there waiting for me when i came back to this idea and i started writing it about five years ago and then of course it was just a process of kind of like threading a story through the middle of all that mechanics and that realistically was, well, how do you write a mystery where you have a time-traveling uh, time traveling detective who could just go to the end of it and see what happened? So I had to work backwards from that. So a long-winded answer to the question, but yeah, it's, it took a very, very long time. So, yeah, in order to, as you say, prevent just the detective magically solving it with his magic powers, you did have to set in place some sort of rules and structure. How did you come up with those? Interestingly, the rules and structure weren't merely there to uh, to stop him just magically solving it. They were actually there because we needed to introduce some sort of tension to the book. I wanted to give it some sort of... The thing with like Christie books is that there was a murder and she'd usually say, well, somebody else is probably going to get murdered. But, you know, he kind of Poirot would just dawdle through. I mean, he was a little fat Belgian detective. He didn't move at pace. The books never really moved at pace. He was going to solve them eventually. And he just kind of dawdled around and asked questions and was quite annoying. And then eventually the book, the mystery got solved. And I wanted a bit more dynamism that I wanted this thing to really move at pace and to pick the reader up and just like drag them through and to have some sort of threat. And the idea of putting this idea that it has to be solved in seven days was my mm. way of doing that. So that's actually where the idea initially came from. And then, as with everything in the book, once I set up the mechanics, I kind of, when I was thinking about the plot, I massaged the plot around those mechanics. So in actual fact, the mystery is... Making the mystery quite complicated and with lots of twists was my, actually my way of stopping the detective just immediately solving it. Because even if you went back and just hung around with it all day, he still wouldn't see what was going on. Have you seen yeah, what I, I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. And so some some of the... Mm. Uh, sort of rules say th the one that really surprised and delighted me when I was reading it was the one about how if you fall asleep in one of the bodies you sort of wake up in a previous one um, mm. because I think when I first started reading it I was expecting to kind of go one two three four five six seven the end but mm. that's not quite how it works is it? No, not at all. And my reasoning for that was when I put these mechanics in place, my first, I wouldn't even say draft, but I got maybe 20, 25,000, because this is 130,000 mm. words, this book. And hopefully it doesn't feel like 130,000 words, but I got about 25, 30,000 words into it. And I realized I wasn't using that time mechanic, that body swapping mechanic to its full extent. Like I could start being a bit more playful with them and start making them more integral to the plot and making them things that he could use or could be used against him. And that's kind of where that came came from just this idea that I wanted to not just have these things in the background of the book as rules as things that were in his way but actually like playful things like fun things that could that could lift 
lift the book and sort of like spread it wider rather than just linearly going forward. And um, yes, that's where that came from. But a lot of the book came out of that sort of realizing that I'd give myself quite a broad palette of things to use and I could use them in more inventive mm. ways. And even now I keep myself with some things where I'm like, oh, did I do as much there as I could have done? But to be honest, I think I would have probably fallen off a dead. My mind would have exploded if I'd tried to fit any more stuff into it. Because <laughs> it does have a quality that because I'm a big Agatha Christie fan as well um it definitely does have a quality that you don't really get in her books where even before I knew the solution I was feeling frustrated with myself at my you know as further revelations came I was thinking oh well I should have known that you know walking Mm -hmm. the first guy off forever and ever was just gonna be really unhelpful and leave him with no options in the future you know I was getting annoyed with myself for not realizing that I felt like as a reader I was kind of like a player in the game as well Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's what we were aiming for. And we aim for that with the design as well, because we've got a map in the hardback version of it, which is a really beautiful map. And it just came out better than we can ever expect it. But it has a certain board mm. game texture to it, board game quality. And the moment you see that, hopefully you're like, right, this is a game. I'm trying to honor uh, Christie's books by having that playfulness, that sense that you do have all the clues as you run through it. And it's written in the first person, present tense. Everything's kind of happening to the characters, learning as you are learning. So you are very much on an equal footing. And that's why I use that, why I use that tense, which is, it's not the easiest thing naturally to write in, strangely, but it kind of, well, just for me, maybe, but it did help with that sense that you were getting everything as our protagonist gets it. And this is a game and you can both do this at the same time if you keep your eyes open for the clues. And that frustration is hopefully shared by the character throughout the book as he realizes the mistakes mm. he's made as well going through and when he's been a bit daft or when he could have used things better. Because he's by no means the all, like, he's by no means a christie s detective he really for the first portion of the book has no idea what he's doing and what this world is and how it works he's just fumbling through it the way i fumble through writing the book to be honest so you mentioned a bit about how if you tried to add any more complexity your head would have exploded um what sort of strategies did you use to keep all the details straight as you were designing and then writing the book uh, well, at first, I used absolutely no strategies whatsoever, which proved to be a massive mistake when I wrote myself into a roadblock for about three months and just had to sit there just staring at this unwieldy plot I'd created. The problem was, because the book has got so many elements, what I found is, because the only way you learn to write a book is by writing a book. So I got, yeah, I got about maybe a year into it and realized the book was kind of spreading sideways like melting butter instead of moving forward because I couldn't seem to focus on which elements I particularly wanted to focus on. So eventually, when I worked this out, I was like, so I sat myself down. I think I got myself the world's like largest stack of post-it notes. I think there was a post-it note <laughs> shortage around the world because uh, they were all in my room and all in my worlds. Uh, I made myself the world's biggest Excel spreadsheet. Um, it would put oil companies to shame. It was massive. And then I just got, I made sure to have people around me who would read it at regular intervals and make sure that the the plot was moving forward rather than going sideways, that I wasn't becoming sidetracked with anything. And of course, after that, it still went up to Harry, my agent. It went to Alison, my UK editor, and Grace, my US editor. And they all had brilliant feedback and that massively helped as well because it allowed me to trim in some areas expand in other areas things that as the the writer i'd never even considered needed explaining for example so uh yeah answer in short post-it notes spreadsheets a lot of late nights and a lot of help (laughs) so you said that the idea for this book 
congealed, I think was the word you used, over about 12 years. How long was the actual writing mm. process? Um, so I think it took about two and a half years in the end. And then it sits with, it went through the editing process with Harry, with Alison, with Grace. And I think it probably took about six or seven months. So the entire thing's come together in about mm. three years. But then I had had that decade of thinking about it beforehand and you know, screwing it up. Um, so, yeah, it's taken a, taken a long time. And this is your first book, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit about your career prior to Evelyn Hardcastle? Um, so career is a really, really lovely word for it. I just generally sort of bounced around between a load of things. So I left university, I went traveling uh, for a long time and I did loads of like really, really crappy jobs in loads and loads of uh, faraway countries. Uh, I came back, I got uh, a job working for a magazine in London called PC Pro which is wonderful. So I was a technology journalist for a while. I moved out to Dubai. I was a travel journalist in Dubai um, for a couple of years. I met my wife out there. And then, God bless her, while we are out there, I was like, I really feel I've got to start writing this book now and I don't really want to do it here. So do you want to come back to London with me? Because it'll be cold and wet there. And she she agreed <laughs> to come. It was very strange. And then um, we I've been freelance. I went freelance so I could write the book two or three days a week and then for two days a week I would do freelance travel trips or whatever freelance I could scrounge make enough money for bills and food and to make sure we had a roof and then go back to writing so yeah it's been it's been a, a a career of many parts, but yeah, not ever on a straight line. Which is maybe not quite, uh, not very surprising to people who've read your book already. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, that's not a straight line either. But so it does sound like you've been, you've been working up to this book for a very long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always been writing and I've always loved writing and I've always been, you know, you write short stories. I, was, I started writing when I was about eight or nine just like trying to write the short stories just telling people stories in fact and um i always had it as i say i always had the agatha christie idea in the back of my head but there was always two or three others circulating around and they're still circulating around and i think i'm maybe a person who sits on things for a long time before i can do anything with them because the immediate story that presents itself is never quite enough for me i need to like layer stuff on bolt stuff around and find a way then to smooth it out and turn it into something interesting or at least something that's interesting to me because i'm realistically going to spend two years on a project or two years on a book and i have to keep myself entertained every single day that i'm doing that and if there's any one day where i'm bored i'm completely terrible i will just switch off and i will go and go outside and do something else entirely so i've just got to make sure it constantly holds me and it keeps changing and um i think that's possibly why this book ended up the way it did and why my next book will probably go the same way but um yeah everyone's going to take a lot of sitting on a lot of thinking about and then a lot of mm. writing and do you have this is one of those questions that i always ask people do you have a kind of writing mm. process um yeah i do actually so i it's really strange, actually. So it comes in two parts. Before I can ever start writing, I need to understand who my characters are. So what I do is I write, I call them uh, character Bibles. Um, they, they are just a piece of writing from their perspective that has nothing to do with the book I'm about to write or the story I'm about to write. So my main, for the character I, I'm writing currently in my current book, 
I have just wrote a scene, and that one's set in the 16th century, but I've just, I've wrote a, a piece that has him wandering around the supermarket trying mm. to buy oranges. And it's just an eye, a way of getting into his head and seeing how he sees the world and seeing uh, how he reacts to very mundane situations. And obviously these things will never cross over into the main book, but I can't start writing that until I know who these people are, and I will do one for every character. So I did one for every character in Seven Deaths, and very strangely they all, that turned into a, a kind of little story all of its own um so hopefully that'll be out there at one point because it's it's a strange little thing but it really it does settle me and i can't really start working i think it's psychological i can't start working until i have that until i'm fixed and i know who these people are and how they're going to interact because that's where a lot of the joyous character stuff comes from and then past that once i actually start writing i am just hopeless in the middle of the day i'm just terrible and if i start writing after 10 or 11 o'clock anything between 11 and about six is going to be bobbins it's just going to be nonsense and i will have to edit it the next day so i tend to do all of my writing quite early from six till maybe 10 and then really late at night so from like 10 onwards and work into the early morning if i can um so yeah i mean i don't know if that counts and lots and lots of tea i mean horrendous amounts of just tea and milk and just awful biscuits <laughs> so i think that's probably the closest i come to a ritual that's so interesting about your character bibles so when you say you wrote one for all the characters in evelyn hardcastle with do you mean literally all of them or just sort of the main sort of eight people no no everybody who spoke in that book got one um so the as i say like they formed a little knitted story but that was only for the for the main protagonist they got a knitted story and then so those ones were about 500 to 600 words but then anyone who ever said a word in the book got at least 60 to 100 words just from mm. their perspective even if it was just them um commenting on something that would be part of their day-to-day -day experience so there's a stable uh, master character in it who's a secondary character but he has a lovely little um, bible entry which is just about him um upbraiding one of the stable hands for not clearing out a um a shed and it's just, it's a stupid little thing, but it was just a way of his voice and getting his perspective and just seeing what he thought was important in this world. And none of that is reflected in the book. Like that, none of what he believes, none of what he kind of needs as a character is in it, but it just helps inform him. And to me, it makes him feel a bit more mm, rounded. That's really interesting. And do you have a, a similar strategy or anything to do with the sort of setting and the landscape? Because that's also very important in the book, isn't it? Oh yeah, the um, Blackheath House, which is where it's set, and the and the, the environs, hugely, hugely important. And I wanted those to be a character in their own right. And I wanted them when I was writing this because he keeps swapping bodies around. He keeps seeing the story and he's seeing the characters from different perspectives. So a person who looks great one day is terrible the next day because your relationships with people change. And I wanted the same to be true of Blackheath that some characters respond to it better than others. Some find it very sort of claustrophobic some take to it better and also i wanted to avoid the repetition of the groundhog day repetition i love the loop of groundhog day i find myself very bored by anything that just repeats exactly the day over trying to change one or two things i think that that mechanic gets very tired very quickly so i needed to make blackie for a place where there was lots of places the characters could go off to 
and have different experiences and see the story from a completely different angle from a different thing, but perhaps hear about it. So maybe in the first day you've heard about something that's happening somewhere else in the house and then eventually you will go and experience that. And I think that the house kind of grew out of that are these two things that I needed. I needed interesting spaces for things to happen. So I had to write those interesting spaces and make them dynamic. And then this idea that as the characters moved around the house, they had to have different visceral reactions to it so i had to create certain places that you could have a visceral reaction to other characters could have a visceral reaction to and um yeah to be honest that was one of the things when i was finished writing it was one of the things i was kind of most pleased with that the house had this character and this foreboding presence yeah that's really interesting that this idea of the because the country house is such a a staple of detective fiction Mm. and i suppose i never thought about it before that that's possibly why for the same reason that you wanted to have a an estate essentially where lots of different locations where people wouldn't necessarily constantly cross paths i suppose that's as true of christy you know she needed the different the different areas she needed there to be a lake and some stables and a lodge and all that kind of stuff for the purposes of the plot exactly yeah and also uh yeah well as you say for the purposes of the plot you need a murder to be committed and you need a reasonable explanation why all of these people could possibly have done it and simply sticking them in an enclosed area is one way to do it. It makes sure that none of your suspects can say, oh, no, I, I actually had nipped into town for some milk <laughs> or they, they, you know, they have to be in a reasonable, well, that was only 10 minutes away from the when a murder happened. So you could get there. It just keeps everybody in the game. It keeps everyone in play. And again, it's, it goes back to the idea of a game, doesn't it? That there is a board, like it is just, that's all it is ultimately like a country house, the rooms, the lake, the boathouse, they're all just, places on the board the places where your characters can move to and you always find out in a hack of the christie that someone claimed to be one place but they were actually the other place where they were having a secret rendezvous or something and again you wouldn't get away with that if it was any larger than the country house yeah that makes sense um so let's talk a little bit about the feeling of sort of threat and foreboding that you mentioned because for me a lot of that was situated in one particular character and that of the footman um so could you tell us a little bit about how he came to be yeah i just wanted to write an utter bastard is uh, fundamentally what i aimed for the um i was trying to create somebody who was really unrepentantly awful and there's another character in there who's unrepentantly awful as well but doesn't perhaps carry the same threat he's a threat for our um he's a threat for our protagonist and he's got to use him he's got to deal with him but the footman had to be primal he had to be uh, scurry he had to be almost supernatural so you could generally believe that he was a match because our protagonist can body swap like you kill him he'll turn up somewhere somewhere else so it's very hard to create someone who that man would be afraid of and that's kind of where he came out of and i what weirdly i found that when i first wrote the footman he had a lot more dialogue he was a bigger part of the book um and that didn't work again it's the movie monster the more you see of him the Mm. less scary it is so i ended up peeling him back a great deal and his first appearances in the actually original draft, his first appearances came much, much later in the book. And Harry suggested, my agent Harry suggested that we bring him forward and that we bring him into the narrative much quicker. And that posed the problem of, again, the movie monster. If I bring him in earlier, how do I keep him threatening? And so you've read it and you've seen kind of how mm. we try and do that, which is we try and keep him out of sight a fair bit. 
but basically if you think about the alien and aliens just stalking the corridors hissing and that's basically what we tried to do with the footman that sort of that sort of like omnipresent threat who kind of reveals himself but when he does reveal himself it's in an absolute horrible flurry of violence and i think also uh the violence so it's very i don't i want to describe it as very graphic because i don't want to stick an 18 certificate on the front of the book but when he turned up that's my writing of the violence becomes a lot more um intense and a lot more sharp and i wanted that to save that for him rather than anybody else so when he turns up you get this different slightly different quality of writing mm. and the the other character that is maybe more mysterious than threatening is the one that gets called the plague doctor and mm. I think possibly that was the most surprising element of the book to me. When I got to him, I was I was like, wow, I really wasn't expecting that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the play doctor to this day, I couldn't really tell you where he came from. Um, I knew I needed somebody to come into the book and explain the yeah. rules of it to the protagonist. Um, and that's really hard to do because everybody at the party is just supposed to be at a party having a nice time. So I needed someone, again, who had a vaguely supernatural feel to them, who was slightly omniscient, who understood the rules of what was going on. And that was that kind of worked in reverse. That he sorry, worked in reverse to the footman. Because initially he was in the book uh not very much at all. He turned up, he delivered some cryptic clues, and then he disappeared again. And actually, as we went through iterations of the story, he ended up becoming more and more of a character and he became, he developed his own arc. And then you have to suddenly explain things like, why is he bothering to turn up in a, a Plague Doctor costume? Why is he uh, being so enigmatic and cryptic? And that kind of sewed through an entirely different thread to the story, which I really hadn't considered in the first draft. The, at the first draft, he was just Mr. Exposition. I'll just turn up, give you the rules, and then I will go away again. And that was all he was there for. So, yeah, that was a kind of, I wouldn't say happy accident because it was thought about, but it was definitely not something that was in the first even year of writing that book. And the image of the Plague Doctor, you know, just what they wear and what they look like is very arresting. And so that was... Mm what drew you to the idea of having him sort of look like that that this will be completely confounding but also it's it's a very intimidating outfit really isn't it yeah and i think because obviously the original the origin of plague doctors just in you know during the plague and what they wore and they thought the beaks they filled them with things to try and keep the plague off them and all that sort of stuff i always loved the idea though of a doctor turning up to you in the most horrific mm. costume that you can possibly imagine you imagine being in a doctor's waiting office and you just walk in and you just sat there in a massive beak mask and a, and a cloak and looking terrifying and then just being like so what's up with you today so i was just having this idea of you know you can imagine going to a doctor's office and just being in the waiting room and just sitting down and then you're called in and there's just this man in this horrific, terrifying costume. And he's, he sits you down and he's like, so what's wrong <laughs> with you today? And he genuinely wants to help. And he genuinely is trying to be kind, but he's wearing this thing, this costume that is repellent and terrifying. And um, I just like that juxtaposition. I thought it was a really interesting thing to do because I wouldn't. You, of course, judge people by what they were, where they look. How could you trust somebody who was dressed that scurrily? Um, and that's kind of something Aiden has to do throughout it. He has to try and work out how to trust this guy, even though he's wearing this ridiculous costume. And trust is, I think, possibly the biggest theme of the book, could we say? Because um, mm. in lots of different ways, but perhaps most centrally between Aiden and Anna, 
that he goes mm. through many iterations of can I trust her? Can I not trust her? What is she doing here? What am I doing here? Can we work together? Is that even mm. allowed? Is that even physically possible? And that, I mean, that in itself is really compelling, the twists and turns that he goes through with that. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you for flagging that up. I really enjoyed that relationship. And it was actually one of the trickiest to write and try and make convincing because they both are given reasons throughout the book not to trust each other. And there's lots of people who don't want them to trust each other for various reasons. And they both fundamentally understand through things that come out in the story that maybe they shouldn't trust each other, that it's not a wise thing to do and they choose to do it anyway. And I think it's possibly the only – I think this book is – I would never call it cynical, but the book is generally about, because it's an Agatha Christie at heart, it's generally about a lot of fairly unlikable people rubbing up against each other. and the sort of. So I needed to have a core within that book of two people who were trying to do the right thing and were fundamentally uncynical about it. Um, and they were, they became that relationship and uh, their bond actually and the way they interact with each other was one of the real delights of writing it because I didn't think about it too hard they kind of very quickly as characters started, I can't even explain, they started speaking to each other in a way that I had not necessarily intended. They just, it was just the way the characters developed and the situation pressed them. And when they started talking and bickering and trusting each other and all that sort of stuff, it was almost as I was writing it, a surprise to me. And there's reams and reams of dialogue, just them chatting for four pages that obviously never made it into the book because it would just be, it would slow everything down and possibly be quite boring. But it was just really lovely to write. I really enjoyed writing them together. And actually, I was it was sad that I couldn't get them together a bit more in the book. Like, they're together plenty, but I could have generally just sat there and wrote them for 400 pages just having, a, having an <laughs> argument about Cause, something. Because that's kind <laughs> of uh, necessary, isn't it, to the plot, that they, they cross over at these certain points, but they don't, they very mm. rarely sort of actually have a, call it like an event together. Um, and actually it reminded me of, I don't know if you uh, watch Doctor Who, at all but it reminded mm. me a bit of um the doctor and river song and the way that um she's always turning up on a different timeline to him so she remembers the mm. previous meetings but he doesn't and she she writes a book that is her recollections of every time they've met and he's not allowed to look in it because then he'll know what's coming um mm. and i i always really like that relationship and that's kind of how this one struck me as well that it's it's always really interesting when you've got a dynamic where one person knows things that the other one doesn't. Yeah, well, I had, um, I just have a real adversarial relationship with Stephen. Well, Martin, don't we just all? Because, don't we like, all? We've never met. Like, yeah, terrible. Like, I'd just be, so I'd be writing this and I was doing things and then I would watch an episode because I come to Doctor Who uh, quite late. I really enjoy it, but I came to it very, very late because um, for years I didn't think it would be for me. And then I started catching these episodes and it would just be like, oh, God, no, like, that would be the thing that I was thinking about writing. Like a month before, I'd just written a page that was very similar to that. And I went through it on a stage of about six months where it was just like, and it was this River Song character where I was just like, stop it, Moffat, <laughs> stop it. Like, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I imagine he doesn't have the same adversarial relationship with me. I've never heard of me. But, yeah, in my head, he is my arch nemesis. <laughs> but a completely, a completely brilliant writer. So I am completely undone by him. But, um, yeah, there are definitely similarities there and um, loads of them. Are, but I think they're kind of like reinforcing. It's nice to know that um, if you're doing something, 
that that idea is obviously a strong one because somebody else is using. And I'm seeing a lot of that around at the moment. We're seeing a lot of sort of Groundhoggy Day stories turning up and a lot of stuff about time loops. And um, so hopefully, yeah, I can just about stay ahead of the <laughs> stay ahead of the onrushing cultural rush. Uh, do you have any particular idea why that might be? Because I've, I've noticed that as well, that it's a it is a, a popular trope. Do you think these things just kind of go in waves? I think so. Yeah, I think it's just cyclical. I think we, um, I think with the year we're having and the two years that we're having, I think people would just quite like to be able just to repeat them over and fix them uh, and make them perhaps go mm. another way. Um, so there might be something in that, but I just generally think it's you know a couple of writers uh, you get them on television, you get them on movies, and then everybody else picks them up because that is the current trend. They write them, they do something slightly different. We're completely exhausted. The entire be a wasteland, uh, an imaginative wasteland in about five years, and then we'll go back to doing psychological thrillers. Um, so yeah, I think it's just it's just the current prevailing trend. But it's quite nice to be part of, I think, because it's interesting to put your book into that sort of canon as it were, and see how it stands out and see what's different and see what you did differently from these other writers and these other filmmakers and television showrunners. You mentioned that you're obviously writing your next book at, at the moment. Is the sort of time looping groundhog idea something that you think you'll ever return to or was it just for, for this particular story? No, it was just for this particular story. So I want to take every idea that I have and treat it with respect and give it what it needs rather than just trying to like impose a mechanic that I was successful with in the past. So no, I think, I mean, unless I came to another story, which I thought you could use it well and could use it in entertaining new ways rather than retreading old ground, but I can't see myself ever going back to it. This one, the second one is going to be something um, entirely different. It's going to have a lot more uh, fact to it. And it's going to be a lot more expansive. Is there anything else you can tell us about it? You said it was set in the 16th century. It is, yeah. So it's, I just, I, not much I can say about it just because my books get changed so much between the initial idea and what actually ends up on the page and what you may be reading in the future. But it, I'm, I'm aiming for something which I'm hopefully uh, calling epic detective fiction. So it'll be, it'll hopefully, yeah, expansive is the thing. So I'm you're sticking about. with the detective genre if we can call it that yeah i think mysteries i have an idea for three mysteries which i'd really really like to write um and then i don't know what will go after the but for the moment that's kind of what's in my head and yeah they're all different from each other i think they're all different from what's kind of around at the moment and i can see myself being able to put like an interesting spin on them and maybe twist them around a little bit and take them from different angles so um yeah and then again post that we'll see where it goes but that'll be a long way down the road well i think that's everything i wanted to ask you thanks again for joining us the seven deaths of evelyn hardcastle by Stuart turton is available now So that was The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. For our book club book next month, we are going to read Eat Up by Ruby Tando. So this is a non-fiction book. Our first two have been fiction. Mm. And it's a sort of food memoir political text about eating and appetite. Would you say that's a fair description? I definitely would. And it's so good. It's really typical Ruby. If you follow Ruby Tando on Twitter, read her work, um, have read any of her stuff in The Guardian, and you know she's she's written all over the place. But she's very funny whilst getting across a very clear 
point about essentially how detached we've become from the fact that food is meant to be like a nice fun thing to do we're supposed to enjoy eating Mm -hmm. it's meant to be pleasurable and you're allowed to eat whatever you like in in that vein it's such a shockingly simple thing to say but it's actually obviously quite radical because we are in a culture that just so doesn't think that um, (laughs) that's part of how we should form our diets really so it's a really it's a really interesting combination of things. Yeah, the aspect of it as well that I think is going to work really well for seriously listeners is how much she writes about the presentation of food in popular culture. Totally, yeah. There are some really gorgeous bits of writing about for instance like food in moonlight, like the diner scene in moonlight and stuff which and then she like spins all uh, theories out of that about how we're thinking about food at the moment that that's the film that say should have won best picture last year all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even just smaller like gestures towards stuff you know where she's talking about her own memoiry stuff about how she feels about food and then she'll be like you know like i love how they do the eggs in moonstruck or something and it's just like Mm. a really a small gesture to but that tells you so much about what's nice about food that it can extend beyond just how it tastes in your mouth all the things that we find Mm. enjoyable about food so yeah cannot wait to talk about that in more detail and to hear your thoughts listeners so yeah eat up is available now so grab yourself a coffee or get the audiobook start reading and then let us know your thoughts on seriouslypod at (laughs) gmail.com Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. 